Good evening. Could you please open your Bibles to Esther chapter 3 with me this evening? We start a new chapter. Esther chapter 3. We'll consider the first six verses for our text this evening. And we'll begin reading at verse 1. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagites, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandments? Now it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. The first two chapters of Esther, which we have considered so far, really serves as an introduction for the forthcoming narrative. They have provided much detail of the historical context, the historical customs, and the historical characters. All of this is vital information in helping you and I to understand the forthcoming plot. It is not until chapter 3 that we are introduced to the main villain in this intriguing tale. He is identified as Haman. And it is he who is the same enemy with a new name, which is the title of the sermon this evening. So let's commit this time to the Lord, and then we'll jump into the text. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are a good God. You are a great God who loves us. I do thank you for the opportunity that I have to open your word up tonight. I do pray that you would grant us understanding. You would grant us illumination from this text of Scripture, Father, and that it would comfort, it would convict whatever is necessary within our hearts, Lord, you know I do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There has been four peaceful years in Shushan since the crowning of the new queen. Esther is now reigning as the new monarch. Mordecai is tending to the king's business at the gate. All seems pretty rosy in Shushan. But oh, how things are about to change. Life is about to be tipped upside down and inside out by the promotion of this man known as Haman. As one reads this unfolding exposition, it is an account in the life of the Jew that can really be duplicated many times, isn't it? The name Haman could almost be substituted with Pharaoh or Herod or Hitler. You know, in fact, there is many a name that would fit this particular scenario. There has never really been a time since Israel has become a nation 
right up until the present moment that there has not been an attempt to exterminate their existence. All one has to do is to watch the news at night, read the paper to realise this sad reality. We have before us this evening the origins of one of the greatest extermination plots of one particular race in human history. This is all led by a new man who is on the side of the same old enemy. And all of these attacks are fueled by hatred towards God. This particular wicked endeavor that we have before us is still to this day remembered in Jewish culture. When they celebrate the Feast of Purim, whenever the name of Haman is mentioned, they all stomp their feet and they speak out, may his name be blotted out, even to this day. You know, to Jews everywhere, the name Haman personifies everybody who has ever tried to exterminate the people of Israel. Such was the magnitude of this hideous proposed plot, which is what we are going to consider in the time we have together this evening. So firstly, let's consider the rival revealed. The rival revealed in verse 1. Verse 1 says, After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. The phrase, after these things, refers back to the events of chapter 2. After the crowning of Esther, and after Mordecai uncovers this conspiracy, the great rival to God's people is promoted by the king. The promotion that is bestowed is given when the reader would expect Mordecai to receive the promotion following his outstanding work of saving the king's life at the end of chapter 2. Haman receiving this great advancement seems almost an injustice towards Mordecai, does it not? But this reminds us that unfortunately in society that evil is often promoted over righteousness. But we must remember that this is never the case in the eyes of God. This particular advancement is a noticeable one. Most scholars believe that Haman is promoted to second in charge over the entire empire. This is quite a significant promotion. This new position was one of great power and of prestige. He could get most things that he wanted. He could make most things happen. He was not promoted to some insignificant position, but one of great power, which we need to remember because this proves how real of a threat that he posed. And within the book of Esther, it reveals that Haman has quite a despicable character. And I don't know about you, but I tend to ask the question, what did the king actually see in this man? What did he see to grant such a significant promotion? You know, Matthew Henry said, I wonder what the king saw in Haman that was commendable or worthy. It is plain that he was not a man of honor or justice, 
or any true courage or steady conduct, but proud and passionate and revengeful, yet was he promoted. I also find it rather interesting that there is no reason given as to why he received this advancement. I think one can probably safely assume that if this was granted for outstanding service or an outstanding achievement, something would be mentioned. If he was an outstanding warrior, if he had experienced great military victory, it would seem something would probably be written. Yet, there is silence. Now, I would like to suggest that this position was possibly bought. Money often gets mankind power and position. This king certainly possessed a character that would be open to bribes. And he was in need of much money at this time, which we will study in the next lesson. And I feel this makes much sense in light of what I've just mentioned and in light of what will be revealed further on in this study. This rival of God's people, we have identified so far simply as Haman. Within this revealing of this villain, we are given some family information. And I think this is extremely instructive and of vital importance in understanding this unfolding story. The father of this man is revealed as Hamadatha. Now, this means very little to you and I, and I'm sure we don't know a Hamadatha, and this name is not mentioned outside of the book of Esther in the Bible. And when it is used in Esther, it is only used in identifying Haman. But there is another little piece of information that is very significant. He is revealed here as an Agagite. But what does this mean? What does this refer to? This can refer to one of two things. Number one, archaeologists have uncovered a particular inscription which indicates that Agag was the name of a Persian province and Haman came from this particular province. Now this is possible, but I think the second suggestion is a lot closer to the mark. So the second suggestion is the term Agagite, according to Jewish tradition, and many other scholars meant that he was a descendant from the royal house of the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, 8. The Amalekites were founded, according to Genesis 36, 12, by a descendant of Esau. Esau, the estranged brother of Jacob, known as Israel. There was always much fighting and striving between Israel and the Amalekites. God had declared war on the Amalekites. He wanted their name and memory blotted out. The Amalekites were actually under a divine curse. The story of this conflict goes right back to Israel's exit from Egypt. The Amalekites attacked God's weary people in the rear ranks of their marching nations. Moses commanded Joshua to fight against Amalek. He interceded on the mountain. A great victory was had. Moses reminded the people just before they went into the promised land of the treacherous attack that the Amalekites 
had posed on Israel. This is seen in Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19. Now it was Saul, the first king of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin, as was Mordecai, an interesting connection, whom God commanded to destroy the Amalekites. God wanted Saul to get rid of these people, to kill every single one of them. But Saul disobeyed this commission, resulting in the loss of his crown and his life. Because Saul didn't fully obey God, some of the Amalekites lived on. And one of those men is Haman. And Haman now takes center stage. And this is what I think the text is meaning when it calls Haman an Agagite. And we need to keep this at the front of our minds because it is very important for explaining future events. So this man Haman was promoted to second in charge over the entire kingdom. Just like Daniel was in Babylon, but how different these two men responded. Now, what one does with authority reveals much about one's character. Daniel's character passed with flying colors. He still glorified his God despite his position. But the power acquired by Haman was certainly not used in such a way. And this leads us to our second point this evening, the refusal of reverence. The refusal of reverence. We see this in verses 2 through to four. We won't worry about reading them again. This man, Haman, not being content with this high position that was unjustly bestowed, he now wants public recognition. He now wants all the honor to go with it, revealing his great pride and arrogance. It is rather interesting as to how this desired treatment came about. Now let me explain. Our text here informs us that the king had to make a commandment in order for this to be bestowed. Now this is rather interesting. For the Persian society, much like most other societies, it was a general rule that an inferior subject would bow down to someone superior. If you didn't, there would be severe consequences. So obviously, there had to be a specific reason for the king to make this command. There was obviously some who did not see Haman as superior and refused to bestow on him the honor without the king giving this commandment. You know, this, I think, further proves that this man was promoted out of the blue for no apparent reason. It seems this promotion was obviously not recognition for previous achievements. You know, I feel further highlighting the probability of the purchasing of this position. This public adoration that was commanded by the king was bestowed by all of those in the king's gate. All of these men bowed down to Haman, all except Mordecai. What a pathetic sight of these men bowing down to this one with such dismal character. The unwillingness of Mordecai to bow is noticed by his colleagues. 
which one can understand. He's the only one who doesn't bow. This would be rather obvious, wouldn't it? One person still standing. Yet it seems here that Haman did not notice. Perhaps he was so caught up with all of this undeserved adoration that he was oblivious to something so obvious. The other king's servants question Mordecai as to why he refuses to bow down. They accuse him of disobedience and disloyalty, not only to Haman, but also to the king. Now, this questioning, according to verse 4, a call occurs sorry, daily. He is interrogated constantly as to why he refuses to bow. No, the text gives the impression that despite this constant questioning, no apparent reason is given instantly. Mordecai does not answer them. He gives them no reason. But an eventual reason is given after much provoking, after much nagging. He says, I refuse to do this because I am a Jew. This man finally reveals to those around him his true identity both by birth and by faith. Remembering this had been kept a secret up until this time. Both Mordecai and Esther had not revealed that they were a Jew. But why was this his excuse? And was it a valid reason? He was disobeying the king's commandment, was he not? Is he right in this particular stand? Now, there are various opinions in regards to answering these questions. And here I will present what I think is the most logical and biblical answer. You know, some think at this time that Mordecai's refusal to bow is because he is jealous. He has his nose out of joints. He's got the huffs. And the puffs, he's got the poochy lip because he didn't get the promotion. Now, some think this was because of his pride and arrogance that he refused to bow. Those who teach this position say it was not against Jewish law to bow down. Sorry, I'll say that again, I got myself mixed up. This is the opinion that it was not against the Jewish law to bow down before a superior in recognition of his rank, like how someone would bow down in the army. They say Abraham bowed down to others. Jacob's family bowed down before Esau. Joseph, he did not stop his brothers from bowing down. David bowed down before Saul. The women of Tekoa bowed down before David. Now these are biblical examples of bowing down to one who is superior. So was Mordecai, in fact, sinning in refusing to bow down and give reverence to Haman? In answering this question, I want to consider two points. So number one, if the two words bow and reverence in our text have no connotation of worship, then Mordecai is in sin. He has disobeyed the king. Well, let's do some investigating. The word used for bow has a very broad range of meaning. It can mean to kneel, to crouch, or to bend down. 
And this word is often used in someone paying respect to a fellow human being. But it can also be used when bowing in reverence to God. The Hebrew word translated reverenced is found about 175 times in the Old Testament. And it is translated directly worship or worshipped 99 times, so well over half. And this particular Hebrew word is the word used in the Ten Commandments in forbidding to bow down to idols. So this helps us to understand that the concept of worship is often attached to this particular Hebrew word. But what we see is both these words can be used in a human sense or a divine sense. Revered more often in the divine sense, but often the context had to be considered in order to determine the meaning, which is quite fine. But I think there is some very good evidence without even considering the context that this was an act of worship towards Haman. When these two Hebrew words that we translate bow and reverence are used together, this occurs four times outside of the book of Esther. That being 2 Chronicles 7.3, 2 Chronicles 29.29, 29, Psalm 22.29 and Psalm 95.6. These are all divine worship. No ambiguity, no mention of merely bowing to humanity. This is clearly worship to God. So from considering other portions of scripture, this was not just out of respect, a salute, but this was bowing to worship. This was Haman chasing honour that was due to God alone. So clearly... This is an acceptable reason to refuse to participate in this activity. Now the second point I want to consider is remember before when we determined that Haman was an Amalekite. This was a devout enemy of God and the Jews. And Mordecai, as we established before, he was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. How could Mordecai show reverence and honour to the enemy of his people and the enemy of his God. One author said no self-respecting Benjamite would bow before a descendant of the ancient Amalekites, an enemy of the Jews. So this refusal was not due to having some personal quarrel with Mordecai. It was not because of his own pride and arrogance, but this was a declaration that he was on God's side. And he would render nothing to man that was due to God alone. This is a powerful stand for what is right. He shines forth as a man who stands upon the word of God, no matter what the consequences may be. Mordecai showed great courage in willing to take a stand in extremely difficult environments. Those around him were pressuring him daily, yet he did not compromise. This man had to stand alone, yet he did not crumble. Such was his courage that this involved standing against the king's decree, which could result in death. Everybody else was doing it, yet he refused to be involved. It wasn't just around fellow Jews he took this stand, but it was in the midst of hostile attacks. This man stood firm in his loyalty to God, refused to participate in this sin. 
He was determined to do what was right, no matter what it was going to cost him. And what a stirring example this is for you and I in our lives. You know, how often we compromise. We falter because of peer pressure. We fall because we won't stand alone. How often we will only stand up when we are with our Christian friends. How often we do things because everybody else is doing it. How often we crumble because we are scared of the consequences. How often we waver in our loyalty to God and become involved in the wicked practices of those around us. You know, beloved, we must be like Mordecai and be willing to stand up for our Saviour and do what is right no matter the cost. I know how great the cost was in this situation with Haman immediately seeking retribution. And this leads us to the third point this evening, the retribution towards the refusal. The retribution towards the refusal. This is seen in verses 5 and 6. Upon being made aware of this situation and seeing this with his own eyes, Haman's ugly character is exposed for all to see. This man is full of wrath. He is quick to anger and to great anger. Immediately he begins to plot his wicked revenge. Haman had the apparent respect of all but one, but he could not get over the fact that one man refused to bow to him. Such was his pride. He was obsessed with self. And he begins to stand out in all of his ugliness as the man of Satan. Now the character of this man is probably best revealed in the six things that God hates and the seventh being an abomination. For all of these are found in the character of Haman in this narrative. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deceiveth, deviseth, sorry, wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and one that soweth discord among the brethren. All of these from the book of Proverbs, describing well this man, whose immediate thought as retribution was to inflict harm on Mordecai. In fact, putting him to death was his solution. And Haman could quite easily have this brought to pass. If he reported this to the king, that one man refused to bow to him, the king would have Mordecai locked up or even put to death. But even this harsh penalty did not satisfy this man's hatred and his lust for revenge. Upon being informed that Mordecai was a Jew. You know, this information motivated his proposal. You know, Haman decided to exterminate the entire Jewish race, every Jew in Ahasuerus' empire, 127 provinces, which of course included Judah, where the faithful remnant had gone back. He was not just content with harming Mordecai alone, but his revenge was going to go far beyond that. And it is here that we have the principal plot of the book introduced to us. It all now starts to fall into place. There is yet another wicked endeavor to destroy God's people, to destroy the promised line of the Messiah. 
I think the question must be asked, how can Haman come to such a harsh, brutal solution? Why is it that he decides a nationwide massacre of the Jews would solve his problem? Would have he suggested such a solution if Mordecai was of a different nationality? Now, has this question ever crossed your mind? This was extreme revenge. You know, I'm sure we all know of someone, when they bestow revenge, it is normally ten times worse than the original wrong or prank that was played. You know, my dad is terrible for this. When I first started work, we were talking at TAFE, funny jokes to play on your boss. So I listened and I put a little bit of glue on my dad's drill. Got in really, really good. The rest of that day, everything that I owned at work was covered in glue. My dad is big on revenge. But Haman, he's much worse. This particular plot is super harsh. But how and why is it that he comes to such a conclusion? Now, let me provide an explanation. This particular revenge finds its roots way back in early Old Testament history. If we remember before the detail I went into explaining the ancestry of Haman, it is this information that helps us to understand as to why this man could come up with such a destructive plan. No, Haman harbored this ancient resentment in his heart towards the people of God from events that occurred hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. In fact, this particular hatred can be traced right back to Jacob and Esau. This hatred can be seen in the fact his people desired to destroy the Israelites in the wilderness. It can be seen in the fact that the God of Israel ordered his people to utterly destroy Haman's people. This was a deep, passionate hatred that had been passed on from generation to generation. Now, perhaps also a motive in attempting to exterminate God's people was an attempt to reverse the curse that God had placed on the people of Haman. You know, I'm sure he was aware of this curse. Maybe his thoughts were, that's well and good, but I'm going to kill your people before you kill me. You know, this is the only explanation that makes any sense to me whatsoever as to why such a diabolical revenge was put forward. He was an Amalekite and the hatred lived on. And this plan ultimately finds its origin in Satan's plan to crush God's people. This is the same old enemy Satan, but in the form of a new man in Haman. This is yet another stage in the age-old conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Satan and the Lord, the way of faith and the way of the world. Now this extermination plot was a serious threat. You can almost hear and smell death approaching. Now this plot has attached to it extreme consequences. We must keep in mind that the extermination of the Jews would mean an end of the messianic line. Ruining the promise of the Messiah, fulfilling Satan's yearning desire. And all it would take for this wicked, destructive extermination plan to come to fruition would be the permission 
of the king. If the king granted permission, this could be a reality. And knowing the character of this man, this is a very real possibility. Will the king give his stamp of approval to this servant of Satan to exterminate this entire race of people? Well, that will have to wait to next time I speak on a Wednesday night. But let me give you three concluding thoughts by way of application this evening. Number one, we need to stand up. We need to stand up. Mordecai gives to you and I a stirring example. He did what was right. He refused to participate in sin despite standing alone, despite the ridicule, despite the continuous pressure, despite the public nature of the stand, despite the consequences. This man was firm in his loyalty to his God. And this did not result in very favorable circumstances, which is often the case Yet he still stood firm. Perhaps there's an area in our lives where we are not taking this stand. We live in a very wicked society. And today, like perhaps no other time, there is a need for us to stand up for what is right. We must remember that it is our place to honor and obey our God and leave the consequences up to him. Number two, deal with sin. Deal with sin. Throughout the word of God, we are given many instructions that we must follow and obey. If we fail to follow God's instructions and disobey them, this will lead to many problems, both now and into the future. Now consider from the narrative before us this evening, if Saul had listened to God, If Saul had completely destroyed the Amalekites as God instructed, there would be no Haman. And this particular threat would have never come to fruition. This wouldn't have happened if Saul had have listened and followed God's instructions. And this same principle applies to you and I today. How often we get ourselves in much trouble, strife and heartache because we fail to listen God. Now imagine how many problems throughout our lives would be eradicated, would be avoided if we would simply listen and obey God's instruction. We also see this problem of not dealing with sin in the life of Haman. We see the problem of a particular sin, that being anger, hatred or bitterness, all synonyms, they all belong together. Now, the writer to the Hebrews describes bitterness as a root. This meaning it grows and grows, ultimately overtaking an individual and often destroys the individual and the lives of those who they are closest to. Now, Haman was a very bitter man. No, brethren, we need to learn to not harbour bitterness in our hearts. For it is a terrible thing that will overtake our lives. It will ruin our life and the lives of everyone around us. And it will have no effect on the one we are bitter towards. That is the foolishness of bitterness. Now we need to deal with that root of bitterness before it takes hold. Poison that root with confession and the grace of God.
Number three, we're in a spiritual battle. We are in a spiritual battle. The narrative this evening reveals that Satan has always endeavoured to destroy God's people and ruin God's plan. Now, although we are not Jews, we are God's people and Satan is still striving to destroy God's people today. He is a lion seeking whom he may devour. We are in a battle. Satan is after us. We have no reason to fear for we are on the side of the Almighty and he has equipped us with everything we need. No, the battle rages. We will face much opposition. The enemy is strong. But in the words of Joshua, be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Amen. Let's pray.